Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Well, good morning and welcome to Crosslink. I am so thankful that you're here and thankful for the opportunity that we have and the freedom that we have to open God's Word. I want to ask you if you have the Bible with you today, if you would take it and open it with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi, the Old Testament book of Malachi for our time together. I'd greatly appreciate it. If you don't have the Bible with you, the words will be here on the screen in just a moment. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and frankly, it's one that being at that last book, it's often uh, overlooked, uh, maybe perhaps sometimes even ignored. Um, it's been a long time since I've heard a message preached from the book of Malachi, and it's been a long time since I've preached from the book of Malachi, and yet there's something in it that I believe God wants us to see today and over the next several weeks as we meet together here at Crosslink Community Church. As we open God's Word together, I want to begin with a very simple question, but it's a question that I want you to seriously consider today and over the coming days as we gear up for the fall semester, and that question is simply this. Have you ever been lost? Have you ever been lost? Have you ever been to a place, frankly, where you did not realize where you were? Maybe you thought you were in a good place, you had everything under control, you knew the general direction, and then suddenly realized things weren't where, they thought they, where you thought they were. When, when I think of that idea of being lost, I'm reminded of the, sometimes the fear, the anxiety, the panic, the, the unawareness, the uncertainty that can come along with that understanding of knowing that you're lost. And when I think of that, my mind goes back to a very real and vivid moment, a memory in my life where, frankly, it wasn't my intention, wasn't my plan. In fact, I was in some ways trying to avoid it, but frankly, I ended up in a place where I was completely lost. In fact, I was in junior high. I was uh, about that middle school age. I don't remember the exact age, but I was somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14 years old. I grew up in Alabama. At the time, we had a small uh, piece of land. We had five acres, and having five acres of land, we had some animals. We had a pond I'd love to go fishing in, and, and we had some animals. We had sheep, and we had chickens, and we had rabbits at that time. And I remember specifically that my dad was going out of town for the weekend, and as was often the case, when he was getting ready to go out of town, he would always pull me aside. I'm the oldest of four children, and he would make this statement to me, and it has stuck with me all these years. He would remind me, he would say, Matthew, while I'm gone, you're the man of the house. Well, I'm gone. You're the man of the house. That means you take care of your mother. That means you look after your siblings. That means you, you have the responsibility of making sure the animals are taken care of. Matthew, it's on you. That's what I heard, okay, in that moment of him saying, you're the man of the house. And so I remember him going out of town. I remember specifically on, on a particular Saturday that I remember that morning, everything seemed well and good. As Saturday evening approached, I went out into the field to make sure the sheep had the feed and the water that they needed because I knew that Sunday was church. Sunday, I'd not be out there checking on them, so I wanted to make sure one last time that everything was okay. Well, on Saturday, when I went onto the field that night, I quickly recognized that literally almost half of our sheep were missing. Now, now we didn't have a ton of sheep. At the time, we probably had 25 to 30 sheep, but, but when you have that many and you realize that half of them are gone, there's a, there's a sense of panic that kind of creeps in. I don't know if you've ever been there before where you lost something important. And so I remember going into the field and walking through the field looking for any kind of foul play or harm. I saw no evidence of that. And so then I decided I'm going to walk along the fence line in hopes that I can figure out if they've gotten out or where they might be. They can't be that far. And so as I walked along that fence line, I remember getting to the far edge of that property where a specific corner joined to which I noticed there was a large gap in the fence. And sheep are not the smartest of animals, okay? There, there's something within them that probably should have said, warning, warning, don't proceed. But the sheep are like, hey, that's great. There's a hole in the fence. Let's try it out. And so I remember looking at that hole, and I remember seeing that there was some wool gathered at the corner, and I knew in that moment these sheep have gotten out of the fence. And so even though it was getting dark and it, nighttime wasn't too far around the corner, I had a reason within myself. It's my responsibility. I can get over there to the fence. I can walk through the, the, these woods that are behind us, hundreds of acres of woods that are behind us. I can call for them, and I think I can get them back in time. 
And so I did. I climbed the fence, and even though it was getting dark, I walked through the trails of those woods. I was calling out for these sheep. And, of course, you know, you lose sheep, and you know how to call them. Sometimes they call back, and so I would find them. And eventually I would take them, literally. And I was strong enough, I could pick them up, and I'd bring them to the fence, and I'd put them back over in their, their pen. I did this time and time again, probably 10, 11 sheep, something like that. I'm bringing them back, and I'm placing them over the fence. But after I brought the last sheep, it suddenly dawned on me. This last sheep literally had a little lamb that was nowhere to be seen. And so I remember counting them again and looking through like Mary had a little lamb, counting them, you know, but Matthew lost his little lamb. And I'm looking and I'm wondering, and it's obvious this lamb is not in the fence. It must still be in the woods, but it doesn't know to respond to my voice. I remember looking and realizing, man, it's really getting dark and it's getting quick. But I reasoned within my mind, it'll only take five to 10 minutes. I'll go right back to where the mother was. The lamb can't be that far. Surely I'll find this lamb. And so I went into those trails and I went into those woods and I went to where I thought the mother was and I was calling out and I was looking and somehow in the process of my distractions, five to 10 minutes turned to like 30 minutes and then to 40 minutes. And frankly, I began to just convince, I'm going to find this thing, I'm going to find this thing. And finally, after more time had passed and I had realized, I came to the conclusion, I'm not going to find this lamb. And I remember coming to that conclusion and finally stopping and looking around. Of course, I don't know if you've ever been in the woods when it gets dark, but when it gets dark, it gets really dark. And suddenly for the first time as I stopped in the midst of my pursuit and my distractions and frankly my agenda in this moment, finally when I stopped to look around me, I realized that I was completely lost. I had no idea where I was. I saw nothing familiar. I didn't recognize this trail. I didn't recognize this trail. Everything seemed completely unfamiliar. And I remember as a 12, 13, 14-year-old, I mean, I began to panic and I began to fear, what do you do in that moment? I couldn't see any light. I could, the only light I had was a little bit of light from the moon. And so I remember panicking, and all of a sudden, it was then and there that as a young man, I learned to pray, okay? Man, I was praying. I remember bargaining with God. God, if you get me out of here, this is what I'll do for you, you know? And I remember walking through those woods. I remember seeing one trail and thinking, well, I'll hope for the best. And I started pursuing that trail. And after a while, something came by, and I heard a noise, and it dawned on me, that's the noise of a car, our property ran parallel with the road. And so I reasoned within myself, if, if the car was there, then I can follow that sound and it'll eventually get me at least to the road to where I can walk home. I never found the lamb that night, but I did find very quickly that I was lost. I will never forget the relief as I made that way towards the sound of that car that had passed. As I went in that direction, I will never forget walking for what seemed like an absolute eternity being completely lost. I will never forget looking through the trees and seeing the glow of this hazy orange light and the relief I felt because I knew in that moment that that light pole was right beside my, my tree house. And now I remember, of course, coming eventually to the fence, climbing over to the fence. I was literally over 500 yards away from where I had entered, but I could at least see the house, and I made my way home that night. The relief and the joy of knowing that I was home and I was safe was more than words can explain. Have you ever been lost? Well, maybe you're here this morning and say, well, Pastor, I, I've never been in that physical place where I've literally been lost that way. I've never been lost in the woods. If you would say that, I would say, then thank God that's the case. But I'm convinced what was true of me physically that night as a middle schooler, if you will, is true for many of us spiritually. Spiritually, many of us, we have come to a place where we have believed in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We've been in church. We've heard the gospel. We've had some sort of experience uh, with God, if you will. But so often in our life, we get distracted along the way. We begin pursuing our own thing. And many of us didn't intend to get there. We, we didn't intend to get off course. But as we're pursuing our own plans and, frankly, our own purposes, as we get distracted by life, sometimes we get to the place where we realize spiritually we're not where we used to be. We're not where we want to be. And most importantly, we get to the place where spiritually we realize that's not where God wants us to be either. Are you lost? 
I believe wholeheartedly the message that God is speaking through the book of Malachi today and the several Sundays ahead of us is this simple statement. God is looking at us through love and through compassion and through grace, and he is looking at us and he is saying, listen, I haven't left you in the dark to figure it out. I haven't abandoned you along the way. You're not in the woods stuck like Matthew was in that moment. God is looking at us and he is saying, I love you and I care for you and I've made a way for you to return to me. And if you return to me, God says, I will return to you. The book of Malachi, God raises up a prophet by the name of Malachi. His name literally means my messenger. He wrote between 440 and 400 BC. He ministered at the same time as a man in the Old Testament by the name of Nehemiah. Now, let me say to you this morning that God's people in this day should have been living in a day of great blessing and great victory. It was a wonderful day on many levels, if you will, In fact, if you remember the Old Testament, perhaps you remember a time when God's people had been in bondage in Babylon. And and they, of course, were in a very tough and it seemed like hopeless situation, but God intervened and God delivered them from Babylon and he released them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city walls and really to rebuild their houses and even their very lives, if you will. God had been so gracious to them. So they have been working hard on the temple. They've been working hard on the city walls and finally everything is complete and they're looking and they're expecting God's blessing. They're anticipating that God is going to make their life wonderful and grand and glorious and good. But the truth of the matter is life at the moment was really hard. Even though they had done all these different things, God wasn't blessing. Even though they had been caught up in all these activities, they didn't sense God's presence. Even though they had done these different activities, the fact is they didn't see God's power at work in their life. And in the midst of that, they began to have many doubts and many questions. As the adversities and the trials and the circumstances mounted up, instead of looking inwardly and examining their own hearts and lives, basically they looked at God and began to blame him. And in the midst of that, God raised up this prophet Malachi to speak directly to the situation and to call them to return to him. It's there this morning. I want to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word as we look at Malachi chapter 1. And here's what we're going to see this morning. As we read through the book of Malachi, we're going to see God's going to identify four specific problems with his people at that time. There were things, frankly, they had outward activity. They seemed religious. They said, if you will, that they loved God. But remember... God is not looking at the outward appearance. What is God looking at? He's looking at the heart. God's not merely hearing the words. He's looking at the heart. God's not merely looking at where you're sitting this morning at church. He's looking at the heart. And as God looked at the heart of the people, God quickly recognized a major problem. And the first of those four problems is that they despise the name of God. Malachi chapter one, look with me what the Bible says. The Bible says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Here's what God says. I have what? Loved you, he says. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. We understand that was because of the consequence of Esau's disobedience. Though Edom, these are the descendants of Esau, says, hey, we've been beaten down, but we'll return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear it down. Men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Verse 6. Oh, a son honors his father. As a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I am a father, God asks, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, priest who do what? Despise my name. But you say, God, how have we despised your name? And here God answers, you've despised my name in that you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, God, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer this to your governor? 
Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Listen to God's statement. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices instead a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations, despising God's name. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. Lord, as we read these words of scripture that were penned so long ago, sometimes we can find it complicated to understand and it may be even more difficult to understand how it applies to us today. But God, I believe that the message that you spoke through Malachi is every bit as true today as it was then. And so God, I pray today, knowing that your word is alive and it's active, I pray through the Holy Spirit that you would speak to us and that you would be glorified today by our response of repentance and of obedience where it's needed in our lives. We praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Despising God's name. I wonder this morning what you think of when you think of the word despise. What does the word despise mean to you? I was asking my children this last night, and one of my kids said, well, to despise something means that you hate something. And I said, well, that's a pretty good application. And then another one of my children said, it's, it's that you find something disgusting. And I was like, well, I don't know if that's applicable or not, but it's a pretty good description of it, if you will. I wonder what things today you would say you despise. Perhaps you would say that uh, you, you are disgusted by politics or something like that. And I could certainly understand that. A few weeks ago, people were all complaining about the hot and humid weather, and we would say we despise hot and humid weather, perhaps. If you're, uh, if you're like me, you would say that you despise and hate the Auburn Tigers football team. I'm not sure, uh, but that would be me growing up in Alabama. There's lots of things in life that we would think of, perhaps to describe with disdain, if you will. But I've known very few people who would ever say, I despise the name of God. I've known very few people, and I've known some that were pretty flamboyant and defiant, but I've known very few people who would say, I am disgusted with God. I've known very few people that would be so brazen that they would, and so arrogant, if you will, that they would actually voice that with their mouth and with their lips. And yet at the same time, God says, according to Malachi chapter 1, that in that day, and I believe even in, today, in our day today, there are some who despise his name. There are some who show a hatred, if you will. It's the idea of a mockery. It's the idea that they are ridiculing God and his holy name. But can I say to you this morning that the characteristics of the person that despises God's name are probably far different than any of us would like to admit. If we think of someone perhaps that is hating God's name or ridiculing God's name, maybe we would think of someone who was just angry at the world and blamed God for everything, someone who, who, who disrespected God in every possible way. We likely wouldn't think of people who come to church on a regular basis. We likely wouldn't think of the people who were, frankly, worshiping like they were worshiping in Malachi's day. And yet God looked at the very people who had an outward appearance, who had an outward form of godliness, who outwardly were worshiping him. And God looked at them and said, you are disdaining, you are despising my name. Well, what would bring God to that point? I want us to see three things that brought God's people in Malachi chapter one to this place where their actions demonstrated their disrespect and their hatefulness towards God's name. Three things. The first thing I want you to consider this morning is what we'll say, what they lost sight of. 
How did these people get there? I mean, these people are, 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 are people who have a knowledge of God. These people are people who have a, frankly, they have good intentions, I think, initially. These are people who are praying. They're going to the temple. They're even offering sacrifices. These are people who God had established a covenant relationship with, and yet they get to a point where God says, you are despising my name. How did they get there? They got there first by what they lost sight of what they lost focus on, what they lost perspective in, if you will, what they lost sight of. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems like the older I get or even the busier sometimes I get, it can be very easy to forget things. Can I get a witness on that at all? Man, it can be very, very easy to forget things and to lose sight of things. And the older we get, the, the easier we make that because we just call them lightly senior moments. You know what I'm talking about? We forget something, uh, it's just a senior moment. Forgive me, show me grace. I was reminded of that as we were on vacation. One of our days on vacation, we'd gone to the beach. Actually, we were at the beach all week long. But on this one particular day, that morning, uh, Manny and I had the opportunity to get on a boat and to go out fishing uh, out into the, into the ocean, into the deep blue sea. It was awesome. We had a great time together. And, and, uh, and as we went out there, I, I am very fair-skinned, if you haven't noticed that before. And uh, so I burn easily. So I'm covered from head to toe, and I have like a fisherman hat that gives me like a 10-foot radius of shade. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, just making sure. And so we go out fishing, and, and uh, I have my sunglasses and everything. We have a great time. And and we probably fished for, I don't know, four or five hours or so. We came back to the house that we were staying, and then we were getting ready, the whole family ready to go to the beach. And so I'm scampering all over the place looking for something that I have misplaced. I can't find it anywhere. And Heather asked me, what are you looking for? I'll be happy to help. And I said, I cannot find my shades. Where are my sunglasses? I, I need them if I'm going to the beach. And she laughed. She said, are you kidding? Like, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, I can't find them. And she said, Matthew, they're on your hat. You know, they're on your hat. We often forget things. There are some things that are lighthearted and simple to forget. My shades were not that big of a deal. But there are some things if we forget and we lose sight of, it will have dramatic impacts on our life. It will have dramatic impacts on our actions and our thought process and all the things that follow. That's what's happening in Malachi's day. They get to this place, frankly, where they're so cold and so distant in their relationship with God that they had deceived themselves. They thought they were fine with God because they were religious on the outside. And God has to look at them and say, no, 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 no. I see your heart and you're not in a relationship with me. You're cold and you're distant. You need to come back to me. And they didn't even realize it. How did they get there? They got there first because of what they lost sight of. And that is this, they lost sight of the love and the faithfulness of God. They lost sight of the love and faithfulness of God. The Bible starts out in Malachi chapter one, verse two, and God says to them, I have loved the personal word, you. Ch children of Israel, I want you to know, God is saying, I have loved you. Now, now stop for just a moment. God, all throughout his word, from beginning to end, communicates his love for us. In fact, it's so clearly communicated that many people will refer to God's word as his love letter to us. Now, it is more than that, but people will say that because God communicates from the very beginning to the very end his unconditional, faithful, unending love for us. God loves us. It's communicated in word. All throughout the Old Testament, God had communicated that. For example, in Jeremiah 31, verse 13, God told them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. But God didn't just tell them, he demonstrated it. Because the next part of that verse says, therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. God communicates his love from beginning to end. Why? Because his very nature, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, is that God is love. That's right. It's not only what he does, it is his nature. It is who he is. So he communicates his love for them, but then he demonstrates it by drawing them to a relationship, by showing them mercy and grace. He demonstrates that by his faithfulness throughout every generation. Sometimes the most impossible situations, God is working these things together for his glory and for the good. He's demonstrating his love every step of the way. The same is true for us today. God has communicated his love towards us. Literally, he has said, listen, I love you, that God so loved the entire world. It's communicated. You may not feel love today. You may doubt that today, but God has communicated it. But not only has he communicated it, he's demonstrated that in the person of his son. God so loved the world that he 
gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God said, I love you, but then God acted upon that and he demonstrated that by sacrificially and graciously giving of himself for us. God had done the same for the Israelites in Malachi chapter one. He says, I have loved you and I have demonstrated my love for you. I've been so faithful to you. But notice what they did. Verse two, but they said, God, how have you loved us? All right, God, we know you told us this. God, we know you, you, you're saying you've demonstrated that through your actions, that you're drawing us to yourself, different things. But tell us exactly how have you loved us? In other words, kind of a background here for the people of Malachi's day, they were living in a time, frankly, of much adversity and much difficulty. And sometimes when we go through adversities and difficulties, instead of looking inwardly and asking ourselves, God, is there anything in my life that you're trying to convict me of that I need to confess and turn from? Instead of looking to God and saying, God, we're looking to you. Would you give us wisdom of how you're wanting to grow us and shape us? Instead, sometimes when we go through adversity and difficulty, we instead look to God and we say, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, if you're so good and so loving, then this shouldn't be happening. This is unfair. I don't deserve this. God, if you are so good and you're in control, then, then how are you going to work this together? And we begin to look, instead of asking God for wisdom, and instead of trusting him and believing his promises, we begin to blame God and we begin to distance ourselves from God and act as if God owes us in some way. See, the people of Israel in this moment, frankly, they were so caught up in their own adversities and difficulties that they didn't realize that much of the consequences that they were experiencing, these challenges they were experiencing, were the consequences of their own disobedience and rejection of God. Completely clueless to it. So here they are in this moment kind of, if you will, blaming God. Here they are in this moment getting angry with God and in the process of that spiritually become very apathetic. Instead of trusting God and recognizing his love, they kind of have this mentality of, God, what have you done for me lately? I look at them and I look at the Israelites in this moment and I think, guys, how could you forget that? How could you lose sight of all that God has done for you? I look at this in this moment and I think, how could you forget how God brought you out of Babylon? How could you forget how God raised up a, a leader to bring you to freedom? How could you forget how God gave you his presence along the way? How could you forget how God brought you to Jerusalem? He provided all the resources to build the temple and rebuild the walls. How could you lose sight of those things? And while it'd be easy for me to look down at the Israelites, the truth of the matter is, is that it's always a lot harder to look inwardly in my own life and think, how is it that I too have at times forgotten? How is it that I've gotten busy in outward activities, religious performance? How is it that I've gotten busy at times looking at my own difficulty and circumstance and, and kind of look at God as if, God, uh, you know, why are you doing this or allowing this? How easy it is at times for me to look down at the Israelites and not look inwardly at myself to realize there have been times that I too have lost sight of God's love. The Israelites were there. They lost sight of God's love. And because they did, it led them on a very negative uh, digression, if you will. In fact, the basis for everything else we're going to read in the book of Malachi all comes back to that one fact that they lost sight of God's love for them. The second thing I want you to see about this despising God's name is not only the basis for it and how they lost sight of the love of God, but secondly, I want you to see the main issue. And that is this. That is that their actions demonstrated who they really loved. Notice who they loved. Now, God says, hey, I've loved you. I'm telling you that. I've also demonstrated that from generation to generation. They're questioning God's love. And then in the process of that, God begins to describe for us several things about the Israelites. Now, remember, God is God, right? And God should be loved supremely above anything and everything else. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, God had spoken to them these words of instruction. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with love God supremely. Now, here's a challenge. Anytime you lose sight of God's love for you, the first place it normally manifests itself is always in our worship of God. 
When we begin to lose sight of God's love for us and all that he's done for us, his faithfulness, his grace, his mercy towards us, the first place it manifests itself is in the way that we worship God. Now, please understand, they had an outward appearance. Everything looked good. Everything looked normal. They were still coming to the temple. They were still praying. They were still offering sacrifices. They were still having an appearance of being God's people. But in the midst of it all, God began to identify and diagnose the real problems. And the real problems, frankly, was who they loved. They were not worshiping to glorify and honor God. They honestly were worshiping simply to get what they could get out of it. Have you ever been there before? That's where the Israelites were in this moment. They thought that they could worship God in their own way with their own rules. And by doing this, they began to demonstrate that they were not worshiping and serving for the glory of God. Frankly, they were worshiping and serving for their own benefit, for their own good, for the feelings they would get out of it. And God basically looked at them and reminded them that their worship was worthless. And he begins to identify that in verses 6 through 14. So notice three things about this. There are three ways that we see who they really loved uh, in this pastor scripture. We see it first off by what they said, by what they said. We see that in verse seven. We see it verse 12. We see it also in verse 13. Here they come to the temple. They're coming. They're offering their sacrifices. Here they're coming to worship God. And here's what they say, verse seven. God literally says these words. You say that the table of the Lord is to be despised. Verse 12, he says again, you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Verse 13, you also say how tiresome it is and you disdainfully sniff at it. God is saying that by their words, they are showing that they're not truly there to worship God. They're talking about themselves. In other words, In this moment, they are viewing the Lord's work. They are viewing worshiping God. They're viewing serving God, even the sacrifices, frankly, as a bother and as an inconvenience. Verse 7, they say that God's work, the table, is to be despised. Verse 12, they look at the fruit of the offerings and they're disgusted by it. Verse 13, they say how tiresome it is. And then, then again in verse 13, they disdainfully sniff at it. Let me ask you a question, parents. How many of you have ever told your child to go clean their room, but as they clean their room, they huffed and puffed all along the way? Right? I I need you to go clean the room. (gasps) Let me pick up my blanket. Let me pick up my clothes over here. And they're huffing and puffing, exaggerated all. And you're looking like, these are the clothes and the toys that you made a mess with. It's your responsibility, right? Right? Huffing and puffing all along. Our, our kids, a lot of times, we'll have movie nights or whatever. We'll have blankets and we're watching movies and we're hanging out on the couches or whatever. When we get done, I'll often say, now I need you to fold up your blanket. And you would think that I have just brought on World War III. <gasps> oh, the blanket! You know, like, you need to repent and get right with No. <laughs> we huff and puff about the little things, right? Every little thing becomes a mountain when it's something that we don't want to do. They they came and they brought their sacrifices to God. They came and brought their offerings. And literally, as they were coming to the temple, they were saying, how tiresome this is. This is so exhausting. It's such a burden, God. God, is such a burden to come to this temple on such a regular basis. God, it's such a burden to have to bring the best of our flocks. It's too expensive. God, it's just way too much to ask of us. I said, Pastor, that that would never happen today. (laughs) Oh, I can't believe they're turning that service to 845. That is just too early. God's not even awake at that point. <laughs> I, I don't even have a front row parking space. I've been there for 10 years. That woman sat in my seat last Sunday. How dare her? That, that, and they want me to serve. Are you kidding me? What? I'm barely awake at 845. How am I going to serve the Lord in that time? How many times is it when we look at our worship and our service and we, we just see the burden that it is. We see the problems that are associated. We see all these difficult things. And we, in essence, are by saying by our actions, God, it's too much. Here's a problem with that. The Bible says that our words come out of the abundance of the heart. 
Well, they didn't realize as they're saying, God, it's such a burden. God, it's so tiresome. It's too much to man to demand. What they were in essence saying is, God, our comforts and our conveniences and our wants and our preferences are more greater than your value and your worth than what you deserve. Can I say to you just very, very honestly this morning, listen, if Jesus could willingly lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine, why would any sacrifice, why would there be any sacrifice that I would look at and say, man, that's just too great for me? In this moment, what they said was demonstrating it wasn't that they loved God supremely. It was that, frankly, they loved them own selves. They loved their own convenience. They loved their own wants. They loved what they got out of the worship not what they were giving to God in worship. Causes me to wonder and ask the question, when it comes to even my words, am I giving God my best? Am I coming to worship to bring glory and honor to God or to bring pleasure and peace to myself? What they said demonstrated their true love. Secondly, notice what they gave. What they gave demonstrated who they truly loved. The Bible says in verse 8, that they were coming and they were bringing offerings. Now remember in the Old Testament, there was a, a lot of restrictions about the sacrifices they were bringing to God. They would bring sacrifices for really the atonement of their sin. And they were doing this because the Bible makes it clear that all these this temporary form of sacrifices were all gonna be fulfilled by the perfect one sacrifice, Jesus, who would come as the Lamb of God to give his life as a sacrifice and a substitute in our place to take away the sins of the world. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to Jesus who would be the fulfillment of those. We no longer have those sacrifices today because Jesus gave his life in our place. He's the perfect sacrifice. So having said that, in Leviticus chapter 22, God gave specific instructions about the sacrifices that were to be given. It was to be the firstborn of the flock. It was to be a male. It was to be perfect, without blemish, without spot or any wrinkle. It was there to be offered as a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. All of that was a picture. Why did God give those specific instructions? I think he did for two reasons. One, because God is worthy of our best. Not the leftovers, not the disease and the defiled that you don't really want anyway, but he's worthy of our best. Secondly, because these were all pointing to the perfect son of, Christ, son of God, Jesus Christ. They were all pointing to the perfect lamb of God who was not diseased, who was not defiled, who did not have spot, who did not have blemish, who never sinned. They were all pointing to him. So notice what happened when they came to offer their sacrifices. Verse 8, they brought sacrifices, but the Bible says they presented the blind animals for sacrifice. Verse 8, they presented the lame and the sick as their sacrifices. In, order, in other words, they brought to God the animals and the sacrifices that they didn't want anyway. They brought what was easy, what was comfortable, what was convenient. Basically, they brought, if you will, for lack of a better term, they brought the leftovers. And then literally the Bible tells us in verses 13 and 14, some even made a vow, but instead of giving their own sacrifices, they went and stole from someone else just so they could come and bring it to God and have an outward appearance of it. What they gave demonstrated it wasn't that they loved God supremely, that they honored him, that they wanted to bring their best, that they wanted to worship God. It wasn't that they came and said, God, we know that we're a sinner and we're looking forward one day that Jesus is going to come, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin. So, God, we come in faith and we come to experience your grace. No, they came and they said, God, we'll just give you this because it's easy. What they gave demonstrated that they didn't love God supremely, really. They loved themselves. It's not that they weren't giving, it's that they weren't giving their best. Man, it causes me to ask in my own life, God, am I giving you the best of my time? Of, of the gifts that you've given me, the skills you've given me, am I giving you my best, God? Of, of the talents, of the, of the resources, of the opportunities, God, am I giving you the best? Or am I just giving what's easy and convenient? Not only do we see who they loved by what they said and then by what they gave, but we also see it by what they asked. Now, notice the statement in verse 9. So, so picture the story. They come to, to the temple complaining all along the way. 
This is so burdensome. This is so tiring. Such a bother. God, why do we have to do this? God, it's too expensive. We can't keep giving you these sacrifices. You always want the best in our flock anyway. They come complaining, and then they offer basically that which has a little value, that which is easy. But then they asked something. Verse 9. But now, Malachi asks, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? Now, now, now let me break that down for you in like 2019 language. Here's what's happening. They're complaining all the way to the temple. They're giving God the least they possibly can. But here's what they're doing. God, we know we've complained. We know we've done hardly nothing for you. But God, won't you open up the windows of heaven and just pour out your blessings upon us, God, because we want a blessing. God, we know we've been, we've been so stingy in, in, in giving to you. God, we know we've done so little for you. But God, we want your abundant blessings. God, we know we've seen your work as a burden, but we want your abundant blessing. God, we know we've given you the scraps of our life, but we want your abundant supply. Just pour it out, God. Why? Because ultimately their worship was about themselves. What they could get, what they could have, what they could feel. But can I say to us this morning, God will never settle for a half-hearted worship that's all about us. Can, can I just be very, very, very blunt with you this morning? I don't, I don't I just feel, I don't been on vacation, so maybe I feel the freedom to be blunt with you this morning. But can I say to you that one of the major challenges within the church, the American church especially today, is that if we're not careful, I think in many ways we, there's been a culture where people come for the worship for the sake of what they themselves are getting out of it. God, I'm here, pour out the blessings. But can I remind us this morning? Our worship, yes, God might bless, and yes, God might move, and God might convict, and yes, there might be at times a response, but here's the reality. Our worship is not about what I can get out of it. It's about what he deserves. It's about his glory. It's about his worth, and so I simply come to praise him. I come to honor him. I come to serve him. I come to lift up my voice to him, to come with a sacrifice of praise. It's all about him. It's about his glory. It's about his good, his worth, his praise, his value, his adoration. And when my focus is on him, I'm not focused on what somebody else is or isn't doing. I'm not focused on what it feels like in the building. I'm not concerned whether there's pews or there's chairs or I'm standing and there's nothing. If it's really about him, it's not about my comforts. It's about glorifying and honoring God with all that I am. Someone say, well, you know, I just can't worship in such and such an environment. Listen, if your worship is focused on God, it doesn't matter if you are in the most poverty-stricken country in the world, if you are in prison, it doesn't matter where you are. If your worship is on God, you're going to be able to worship. But if it's based upon yourself, you're right. Everything about the environment will matter because it's based upon you. Y'all still all right? Y'all are like, don't ever go on vacation again, please. Third thing I want you to see this morning is this. I want you to consider what they learned. I have to be careful with that because really it's what they discovered. As God is speaking these words of truth, God begins to expose and reveal to them three things that stand out to them and should stand out to us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you when I tell you this, that when God addressed these things with them, they heard him but they didn't really receive it. There's a difference, isn't there? Husbands, has your wife ever told you something that you heard, but you didn't receive? A wife can tell when something's received or not, and so can God. So God begins to speak these words, three things that I think he reveals to them that they don't necessarily constantly receive. The first thing is this. He reveals to them the worthlessness of their worship. Somebody say, doesn't God always want it when we come to sing praises to him? Doesn't God always want it when we come to give to him? Not necessarily. Listen to the statement in verse 9. God looks and he says, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10, listen to what God says. 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. For I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God is saying, listen, okay, yeah, yeah. You're going through the motions. You're acting a certain way. You have an outward appearance. You're offering sacrifices, all these different things. But it's not from a heart of faith. It's not from a heart of love and a heart of devotion. You're just outwardly doing these vain motions to be seen of others and to feel good about yourself. And so God says, listen, I wish that somebody in the midst would get up and close the gate so that you would stop this worthless worship of me. That's a sobering statement. Let that sink in for a moment. When God wants the doors closed, that's a powerful statement. So God reveals to them the worthlessness of their worship. Secondly, God reveals his own worth. Notice what he says in verses 11 and verse 14. He says it's this, simply this way. My name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, he says it again. He says, I am a great king, and my name is feared among the nations. In other words, he's saying, listen, I am not merely man. I'm not even merely a governor or a president or a king. I am God. And my glory will be revealed throughout all the nations. So you can worship and praise me today and experience grace and forgiveness and hope and healing. Or one day your knee can bow and you can confess me as Lord. You will worship because I am God. And my glory will extend to the ends of the earth. The final thing we see from God, we see it all the way in Malachi chapter 3 verse 7. We'll see it in detail in two weeks. And that is this. We see the will of God. Closing question. Let me ask you this. How would you respond to a people who constantly were set on going their own direction? How would you respond to a people who were who kind of half-heartedly showing you appreciation or love? How would you respond to a people who were kind of just doing things for an outward appearance, their heart wasn't really in it? If you were God, how would you respond? Listen, I'm going to be honest, if I were God in that moment, I'm thankful that I'm not, and you're thankful that I'm not as well. But if I were God in that moment, I would probably be harsh. I hate to say that. I would probably say, well, you're going to get what you deserve. But I want you to consider how God responds to these very people. Remember, these are the people who have largely rejected him. These are the people who have done what they've done for their own perspective, their own praise, for the outward appearance. These are people that are just going through the motions. They've grown cold in their relationship with him. They've grown distant in their relationship with him. Even though God has invited them and invited them and invited them, they've continually rejected. How does God respond? He tells us in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what he says. He says, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. But listen to what he says. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. What is God's will? What is God's desire for those who have strayed? What is God's desire for those, frankly, who literally are just going through the motions, who maybe have an outward appearance, but they're far from him? What is God's desire for those who spiritually have grown cold? Is God's desire judgment? No. Is God's desire rejection? No. God's desire is for you to be brought to a right relationship with him. But pastor, you you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the situation. God God does not care what you've done. He does not care where you've been. He doesn't care how far you've gone. What he cares is this, is that you come home, that you repent of your sin, that you turn to him and experience his forgiveness and his grace and his love as a father who cares for his child. That's why Malachi would look and God would speak to him and say, return to me. And then he gives a word of promise and I will return to you. That's why Charles can share the testimony. I was there in jail and I repented and I turned back to God and I recognized my need for God. And what did he experience? He experienced God's forgiveness. He experienced God's joy and he experienced God beginning to make him a brand new creation and a brand new man. That's what God does with any man or any woman or any child who repents of their sin and returns to him. The question is simply this. Do you need to return to the Lord? And if so, will you? Malachi's day, we're going to see over the next few weeks, 
God addressed situation after situation, and he continually gave the appeal, return to me, and I'll return to you. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Return to me, and I'll return to you. But the sad reality for the people of Malachi's day is this. They heard it, but they didn't receive it. They missed the opportunity. They missed the moment. Little did they know that for the next 400 years, God would be completely silent. No new prophet, no fresh word from God, no other opportunity. So Pastor, are you saying this can be 400 years before there'd be another opportunity? That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying this. If God is convicting you today that you've just been busy going through the motions and you need to return to a relationship with him, don't take the opportunity for granted. Repent of your sin. Recognize and believe the promise of God and return to him. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. Lord, I confess when I think of despising your name, I, I think of perhaps someone who would be outwardly defiant against you. I certainly don't think of worshipers who give less than their best. I certainly don't think of people who have an outward appearance of godliness, but it's merely an appearance. Their heart is far from you. And God, as I hear that, God, I'm reminded of a season in my own life where I outwardly looked apart. I went to church, I sang in a choir, I did Christian things, but I was not in a relationship with you. God, I thank you that you did bring me to that place in my life where I did repent of my sins and I did return to you. And God, really the rest is history of what you've done in my life. God, I thank you for Charles's testimony that we heard earlier today of how he too strayed, how he went his own direction. He, he went through that season where, frankly, he was angry at you. He didn't understand how a good God could allow such pain. And yet, God, when he came to the end of himself, he understood your calling and your will for him to return to you, and I'm so thankful that he did. That call to repent of our sin and return to you, God, is the call that you're giving many of us here today. Father, help us to be reminded today that it's not about the outward appearance. God, you see the heart. So God, I pray today if there's anyone that is not in a right relationship with you right now, this very place, this very time, this very moment, right now, God, would you make them aware of their need to return to you? God, right now, may they have that conviction that now's the time to be right with you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Have your way in this time together. I pray. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.